If you're ready to study the scripture, why don't you uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 68, verse 4. Psalm 68, verse 4. Today gives us a chance to launch a new series, and the new series is, uh, interestingly enough, called Messy Church. Because I want you to hear from me about what I believe about church, who God is and who we are as his people. And so today, I'm going to kick off the series with a message titled, A Beautiful Mess. A Beautiful Mess. Because I, I, I believe that God works in the messes of our lives and in the difficulty and the strain and the, the struggle of our community of believers. And I want to talk a little bit about how that works today. So if you're ready to read the scripture, let's pray and then let's read together. Father, would you illuminate the reading of your word, cause it to come alive to us. Help us to hear your voice, to know what you're saying, and to do what's written in these pages. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 68 verse 4 says, sing to God. Sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. Let's just pause right here for a second. The psalmist is describing, he's challenging the reader to sing to the Lord. What we've just done here in this place. To sing and to exalt and extol and lift up the name of the Lord. To make a big deal out of God. What God has done is worth making a big deal out of. So here's the, here's the interesting thing. What is it? What is the big deal? What is, what is it that we're supposed to sing about and just, you know, get all excited about? What is the psalmist pointing at? Is he pointing at the fact that God rides on clouds? I mean, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool to ride on a cloud. I mean, I think that would be pretty cool. I mean, God flung the stars into space. The Bible says he holds the universe in the palm of his hand. That's pretty awesome. I mean, when I look at the mountains, I look at the, the lakes and the rivers and the creation, I, I see it and I, I'm, I'm stunned many times by its beauty and it elicits a worshiping response because I know who created it. So I'm not saying that creation can't elicit a response or God's massive power demonstrated through creation is not worthy of worship. I, I believe that. But I think the psalmist is pointing at something else, something so much more profound than just beauty. There's something even more beautiful. The next verse gives it to us. Verse 5. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God. Notice the structure. This is who God is where he dwells. Another way you could say it is where God dwells, orphans find a home. Where God dwells, he defends the weak and the vulnerable. This is what the psalmist is pointing at that we should make a big deal out of. Verse 6, notice what it says. It says, God sets the lonely in families. 
He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. The thing that's such a big deal that God does is he takes people who didn't belong and causes them to belong. Weak, vulnerable, broken. This is the reason for making such noise. This is the reason for singing and shouting and, dare I say, dancing. <laughs> is what God does when he puts a lonely person in a place where they can belong. The miracle of that in a person's life. Here's the premise I want you to work with me on tonight. That the work of God is the work of placing people in a family. Whose family? Well, frankly, his family. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. They were having a discussion. Nicodemus had showed up under cover of night. He was a religious leader in the Jewish community. He was intellectual. He was incredibly smart. And they have this dialogue, and Nicodemus is asking Jesus, okay, we've seen the miracles. We've seen the signs and wonders. What is this? What, what is happening here? How does this work? And Jesus looks at him and said, you're, you're the teacher of all Israel, and you don't understand this? Jesus says to him, some very insightful words. He says, you must be born again. Born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? Do you mean I have to go back into my mother's womb? Ooh. <laughs> that doesn't work. Nicodemus actually has this dialogue with Jesus. You could look it up in John 3. He says, how can I go back into my mother's womb? That doesn't make any sense to me. And Jesus said, listen, every person has to be born of water and the spirit. Born naturally and born supernaturally. God wants to birth people into his family. This is the thing that we should be making a big deal out of. This is the miracle. But I want you to notice, based on Psalm 68, what kind of people, because I think it's unique, the kind of people that God puts in a family. God welcomes people into his family who are weak, vulnerable, and in great need. People who are trapped. He leads the prisoners out with singing. The people who are broken and struggling, those are the people God welcomes into his family. Notice what it says about the other people, the rebellious. They live in a sun-scorched land. A sun-scorched land, meaning there's no fruit, there's no provision, it's desolate, there's no water, there's no refreshing. God has room in his family for everyone who will admit that they are weak and vulnerable and broken. People who aren't willing to admit that, they have a hard time getting into his family. That's what this verse is saying right here. If you look throughout the Bible, you see every great character of the Bible story. You see they are deeply flawed, weak. Here's the, here's the trouble. When you're birthed into God's family, there is a moment of regeneration. You are indeed made a new creation. 
And then there is the working out of our own salvation with fear and trembling. And what happens is we are, we are put into a family, but that family is not perfect. If you think about families in general, they're not perfect, are they? Families, in fact, are incredibly messy. I don't know about you. I mean, whenever we have people over for dinner, we clean the house up really good because we don't want them to see how we actually live. There's something we don't want them to see the mess. I, I tend to think that's how church is too. We, we like on Sunday mornings, all right, we, we clean up a little bit. We make it, we make it look nice because there's no reason to show them the dirty laundry on their first visit. But how many of you know, we got dirty laundry? See, just like families are messy, churches are messy. But here's the problem. We're uncomfortable with messes in church. We're not used to that. We come in, we smile, people ask us, how you doing? You say, fine, yeah, I'm fine, I'm doing great. Church is sometimes perceived as a place where you can't reveal the mess that's going on in your life. But nothing could be farther from the truth of the gospel. When God births you into his family, he puts you there and begins to work on you with the people that you belong to. As I said, I have five kids, age 17 to 5. And I remember just a while back, number four and number five, at this time, they were five and three years old. And I remember on a Saturday night, you know, I'd, I'd gotten ready for Sunday, and I had to get up the next morning and speak at two services. And I remember about one o'clock in the morning on that Sunday morning, and I, I hear a whimpering down the hallway. It turns into a bit more of a cry, and I lay real still, hoping it will go away or hoping that my wife will get up and go see what's wrong. She doesn't, which is abnormal for her. So I get up, I hear it, I hear it's coming down the hallway, I walk into the room, and there are my two boys. One's on the top bunk, Ethan, and the other's on the bottom bunk. And the Ethan on the top bunk is, is kind of kneeling in his bed, and he's holding his tummy, he's like, I don't feel good. And I walk towards him, and as soon as I walk towards him, he throws up the hugest barf I've ever seen. I mean, it was like an arc, all over, I mean, over the railing and all over the carpet. It was awful. And Owen's there on the bottom bunk, my eye, my eye, my eye, Ethan's threw up in my eye. I mean, when it happened, I could feel the spray on my face. It was so gross. So there we are. By that time, Amy comes to the door and she is laughing her head off. I'm like, what in the world? It's, what is it with Saturday night? It seems like this never happens on Monday night. So there I am. The kids go into the tub. I'm there. I'm scrubbing the carpet, you know, throw up, trying to get it all up. We stayed up for another hour and a half trying to get it all cleaned up. Isn't this just part of being in a family? Don't you just have to deal with those things? I wonder what it would look like if we could think of our church as more of a family. 
It's true. It's true. People's lives are a mess. <laughs> Your own life, most likely a bit of a mess. But I wonder if we could see it as our mess and envision how Christ might make it a, a beautiful mess as he works among us. There's a bonding, there's a strengthening, there's a grace that comes on a family when they begin to serve one another and they're learning the lessons of life. Here's the, here's the problem. I want to challenge you to think differently than we normally think. We live in a consumer-driven culture. Everything out there drives you to consume stuff. It drives you to buy and purchase things that you don't need, screaming at you, uh, new and improved. Everything, all marketing, all ads, they all are trying to get you to consume something. And it, and it sort of makes us focused on ourselves. We end up, a lot of times, in a consumer culture feeling dissatisfied with what we have. What I'm concerned about is that the consumer culture has seeped into the church. And now we're just uh, kind of seeing our church as a, a place where we consume things, where we consume God products, where, we, where, where the pastor gives us stuff and we're thinking about how the church can serve us, how we can enjoy it. And if I don't enjoy it and it doesn't quite work out where enough arrows are pointing at me, it's kind of like, ah, I don't know if I have time for this. It's a consumer-driven mentality. Now, here's the problem. We all, none of us like that idea of religion. We don't like a consumer-driven religion on the face of it. It just, we, you say it and it doesn't sound right. So we want to get rid of it, but we have to replace it with something. What are we going to replace it with? I think we have to replace it with the idea that the church is God's family. And instead of being, instead of consuming God, we need to be consumed by him. We need to be consumed by the truth of his word. We need to be consumed by a community of people who will challenge us and walk with us on the journey of faith. That that's what we, instead of consuming these things ourselves, we yield to God's plan and purpose, consumed with what he has. Church shopping is an experience I really never got to have. I was born on Saturday and in church on Sunday because my dad was a pastor. And so I didn't get to choose, really, any churches all my life. <laughs> That's really not true. I kind of chose, chose this one. I at least chose to plant it. I was never guaranteed <laughs> who would come. But, but I... I didn't, really, I didn't really go through a phase of church shopping. And I know people move into town and they have to figure out where they belong and all that stuff. And I, I understand all that. But the idea of church shopping is consumer driven. How does this church work for me? How does it work for my kids? How does it, now let me, let me tell you how it works. You drive up into a parking lot. You probably had this experience. You're trying to pump up the family. This could be it, you say. It's the ninth one. Here we go. You get out of the car, you walk in the doors, and there they are, these really sweet, nice people, Walmart greeters. <laughs> Here they slap a name tag on you. You know why we slap a name tag on everybody who will take it? Because it eliminates the first line of defense in starting the relationship. 
That's an important idea. It's not just so we can look like we're at a convention. So we're, you're walking in, you're walking through the lobby, and you're thinking to yourself, do, do I belong here? Is this a sign? Is there a sign? God, show me a sign. You take your children to check them in at the children's classrooms, and then your daughter gives you that look. No, don't send me in there. I don't know any of those people. Then you finally get her settled, and you walk on through the lobby. Do I belong here? Maybe a caramel macchiato will help. Do they have a coffee bar? Because I think that's really important in a church. You take your coffee, you get in the church, you're kind of worshiping with one eye open and one eye closed. You kind of want to see people, but you know, you want to worship God, but then you want to watch. You take, you take notes on the sermon like a seminary theologian. The prayer is said at the end, you get your family, you pick up your daughter, you go out to the car, you get in the car, you close the doors, you look at your spouse, eh, was that it? The reason that's so awkward, the reason it doesn't work is because I think there's a truth that we miss if, we, if we're just embracing the consumer mindset. And here's the one truth. Are you ready? No one gets to choose their own family. <laughs> no one gets to choose their own family. Adopted children don't get to choose their parents. Parents choose the child. You're born into the family you get. I mean, okay, think about it. You know your family. Would you choose them? <laughs> Some of them you might. Others of them you might get rid of. Here's the problem. It doesn't work. It's not right. And I think in this same way, we have to understand that God adds us to a family. He births us much like we're born again into the kingdom of God. We are birthed into a family who loves us and is connected to us. And I, I know there's some Christians, I've, I've met them, and they, they'll say, you know, I'm not, I, I, this isn't the kind of church that I would normally be part of, but I just feel like God wants us to be there. So we're there. That's God birthing you into a church. I have a saying around one chapel, and it goes like this. I think it's less about the criteria and more about feeling like you're home. I think most of the time, you know that. You can't explain it. You don't even know what they believe exactly, but you know, oh, I think this is where I belong. That's a work of God's spirit. That's a work of his spirit in you. That's the attraction of the Holy Spirit directing you. And I remember being a parent, watching my daughter, Grace, at a school performance. She's there in the gymnasium. She's on the risers. She's got a little bow in her hair and a cute little dress, and she's singing, and the, the gymnasium makes it sound horrible. The sound system is awful. The teacher's not a good speaker. It's The whole thing's very awkward. The kid in front of her is screaming at the top of his lungs, kind of ruining the whole thing, and there's a kid, you know, digging for gold on the end, and, 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 and it's, just, it's just this whole thing, and, and here's the problem. Here's the weird part. I enjoyed everything. Every moment of it. Why? And evidently, all the other parents did too, because they all had their cameras, and like every parent is like filming it. Like this is the greatest thing ever. It was awful. But why do you enjoy it? Because I'm there as a family member, not a critic. 
I'm not there to consume something. I'm there to embrace someone. I'm there to be supportive. If you think about the church in terms of a family, it changes your mindset. It changes your thought process. Here's what I believe. The church is a spiritual family. The church is a spiritual family, and we've got to make our peace with this. If you look at the grand narrative of the Bible, if you look at how God interacts with humanity throughout the scriptures, you begin to see a theme emerging, and it is the theme of family. Think about the original design, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Noah and his family were chosen to survive the flood. The promise given to Abraham was for his family and his descendants, his offspring, Isaac and Jacob. The 12 tribes of Israel are indeed the 12 extended families of Jacob. The marriage and family analogies in the Old and New Testament, consider how God uses these analogies and tries to illustrate the relationship between him and his people talking about marriage, talking about even divorce at one point in the Old Testament history and prostitution, how his people had prostituted themselves. They've chosen to love another even though they're married to him. The Apostle Paul, the same thing in Ephesians 5 in the New Testament. He talks about how marriage is this illustration of how God loves people. God's son, think of this, came into the world as a baby. There is nothing more vulnerable than a baby. Comes into the world in a baby, into a family. And by the way, that family had a bit of controversy. I mean, imagine it. If your 15-year-old girl, your teenage daughter said, Dad, Dad, no, no, it's really not him. It was the Holy Spirit. Right. Somehow in that mess, Christ emerged. Jesus taught his disciples when he, they asked him, how do, should, should we pray? Jesus could have said, here's how you pray. Oh, great CEO in the sky. <laughs> oh, great master of the universe. No, Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. He was shaping identity. He was shaping the identity of the disciples and all who would follow them. Jesus' mother and brother and sisters, here's what Jesus said. His mother and brothers were outside and they came to Jesus and said, hey, your mom and your bros are outside. And he's like, who are my mother and my brothers and sisters? But those who do the will of God, those who obey God's word. Those, those are, that's my family. Jesus chose two sets of brothers as part of his disciples. I don't know if you have any brothers, but man, they fight a lot. Think of that. Two sets in the disciples. The apostle Paul calls Timothy a true son in the faith. Paul calls believers together God's household of faith. We're called to, to be God's children. In fact, Luke says, Later on in his writing about Jesus, Jesus said this. He said, if you, though being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? We're encouraged to be like children in God's kingdom. 
Jesus said it. If you want to understand the kingdom, you've got to become like a child. God's story is a family story. The Bible is a family book. And here's the bottom line. As you see this theme emerging, what I believe has to happen is every believer must be a member of a spiritual family. Every member must be a member of a spiritual family. Problem is, it's a lot messier to be part of a family than it is to be part of a corporate org chart. Sometimes it's a lot easier to navigate the chain of command in a corporation than it is to deal with one another as uncles and aunts and cousins and brothers and sisters. But here's the, here's the truth. Here's, here's what I think we can conclude from these ideas, and that is if you are not a member of a spiritual family, you're an orphan. You're a spiritual orphan. I have met so many orphans in Austin. Spiritual orphans, they, they, they kind of love God. They've been bouncing around from place to place to place. They don't really belong anywhere. They have no one speaking into their lives. They have no one challenging them to do the right thing. No one who could even get close to disciplining them. They just kind of bounce around, and they're just, they're just orphans without a father. It's so sad, it, and it, it's really true, right? Everybody loves God. They just don't like his family. It's easy to love God. He's perfect. The problem is his family's not that great because it's you and me. And so the struggle people have is they don't want to surrender to belonging to a family. They don't want to really engage in a family. But here's the problem. I think God's original design for discipleship is found in a family atmosphere. Think about this. Think about this. How does it work? How do you raise kids? How do you teach them the right things? Well, number one, here's what happens in a family. You have constant contact, at least until they're teenagers. You have, you have consistent modeling. Everybody knows that kids don't do what their parents tell them to do. They do what their parents do. Modeling is in a family. Instant feedback. Man, we have trouble with this in the church. We don't do good with feedback. We don't give and receive feedback very well. Growth measurements. Think of what happens. You remember in the family when you looked at the doorpost and there was the measurements of each kid at each year and they'd mark it as they grew. Here in the, in the church, at least in the Western church, in the Americanized church, we don't do very good with measuring people's spiritual growth. So we don't make a lot of disciples we make a lot of people who know information. We make a lot of people who enjoy the service. The problem is we have to find ways to help people grow and measure their growth. This is one of the things that One Chapel is going to be committed to. And I'm doing all kinds of research right now, and we're working on things so that, I, so that at some point here, in the next several months, there will be an understandable and accessible pathway for making disciples, for becoming a disciple. Think about this, learning how to fight, how to forgive, how to forget. Learning how to fight with each other. You know, you learn how to fight first in your family. Where you're supposed to learn how to fight fair is in your family. No, you can't hit them just because they took the toy. <laughs> Think about the lessons, the first lessons on selfishness and failure and injustice. They, they happen in a family. You're supposed to wrestle through it. you got to figure it out. 
the injustice of your little brother coming and annoying you. The, the, the fact that life is not all about you, you learn that first in a family. Okay, here's the problem. Here's the problem. We live in a divorce culture. We live in a broken family culture. So it's no wonder that our churches don't really function like families very well. Because so many of us are touched by the pain of broken families. Divorce. You got, you got the holidays where I know people who are trying to figure out how many of their step-parents they have to go to their house for Christmas. And they're wrestling through all these dynamics. Listen, I have compassion for it. It is where we are. It's the culture we live in. And there are, there are these things we've got to deal with. I don't want any of you to feel uh, shame at that prospect. But what I want to challenge you to do is draw a line from here, not backwards, but forwards, to put into practice the ideas that we have to espouse as a church. And that is to help people understand what a family is supposed to look like. What, how a family actually functions in a healthy manner. What does it look like to have a healthy family? Our culture doesn't know. So we've got to figure out a way to express that, to share that, to offer that. And here's the problem. It's really hard to deal with the other people in our family. We don't like fighting. In the church, if you fight, they might leave. I'm not saying that whatever church you're in, you have to stay for the rest of your life. Because here's, here's the truth. I, I know that there are dysfunctional families. I know that we have a, a, quite a history. Most of you have been touched by a dysfunctional church family. You've seen it. You've experienced it. Some of you really have even been violated spiritually, abused. And I... I think when we use God as a way to exercise our own power over other people, we miss what God is supposed to be doing amongst the family. We, we, we mess it up. No doubt there is a chain of command and authority structure in a family, but it's organic and it has to be walked through in a, in a relational way. And sometimes the relationships are so broken you have to escape. I get that. It's okay. There's no shame. I'm not trying to induce shame. What I'm trying to get us to do is to draw a line and say, this is who we're going to be as one chapel. These are the, this is the kind of people we're going to be. We're going to be a place where orphans and widows get taken care of. We're going to be the kind of place where lonely people can be added to us. Here's what it looks like when the church functions as a family. All right? I'm going to give you just three ideas real quickly. Three ideas. Here's what happens when the church functions in a family. We, we grow in maturity. We grow in maturity. Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow into him. Another version says, grow in maturity. Grow in him who is the head, Christ Jesus. If you think about a family, what you realize is that everybody thinks that it's the parent's job to make the children into adults. It's a parent's job to make the kids into adults, but the truth is, what we all really know is, it's the children that make the parents into adults. 
That's how it's supposed to work. In a family, in a healthy family, the parents are matured as they raise this child. The child is cared for. And the grandparents, <laughs> they have value because they keep the kids. <laughs> so that the parents can have a break from the chaos. See, this is how it's supposed to function, but we're challenged in our churches. We're afraid to tell people the truth. See, Ephesians 4.15, one of the cornerstone scriptures of one chapel. And it's for this reason. Because it takes both truth and love for people to grow in maturity. It takes both truth and love. They got to know the truth and they have to have an atmosphere of love where they know they're going to be cared for. Some churches, they get so, so much emphasis on the truth and it's at the expense of love. So it's like, okay, don't you know that the truth will set you free? You just need more truth. You got more problems, here's some more truth. Boom. We just overemphasize the truth so much we start beating people up and that kind of church ends up legalistic and mean. Other kinds of churches, it's all love. It's all about the love, man. It's just love, man. Jesus loves you. It doesn't matter what you're doing. Just Jesus loves you. Just rest in his love. And they never get around to telling the truth about what's going on in their lives and they, they develop weak and immature believers. They never teach them responsibility. So it takes both. It requires both. You, creating an atmosphere of love is the hard work, by the way. Telling the truth is pretty easy. <laughs> Something happens when we choose to function as a church like a family, when we use this family idea to create our culture. Number two, when we choose the church as a family, we create a culture of respect and relevance. A culture of respect and relevance. Here's what I mean by that. Psalm 145 verse 4 says, One generation will commend your works to another. One generation will commend your works to another. I think in America we're pretty good at commending God's works to one demographic group. We got that down. That's why we create so many sub-services, sub-church services. You can only get the traditional service and then we have the contemporary service and then we have the modern service and then we have the ultra modern service and I, I don't know where it ends but what that does is it's a consumer driven ideology it starts with the wrong question what do you like your mama never asked you what you like she she said eat your beans <laughs> Here's what happens when we, when we invite both the young people and the adults, the, the parents and the grandparents to the table. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed how easy it is to have a dinner without any kids? My wife has. <laughs> but how much work it is when the kids are at the table? See, here's what we've done when we segment our churches and we tell the kids to go to the kids' table, you go over there and have your church so we can have it the way we want it. And that's, your music's too loud, and it's too difficult, and it's too inconvenient. We end up creating a bunch of lost boys, Peter Pan, and they just end up fighting with each other. And here's, here's the real tragedy, is, we, is if we relegate the kids to the kids' table, they never get to learn the lessons of their grandparents. 
How is, a, how is a 15 year old supposed to learn what his heritage and history is if he never has to interact with his grandparents? I, you've seen it, Thanksgiving dinner, right? The 15 year old kid is sitting across the table from his really old grandfather and the grandpa is telling way too long of a story about the war and his dentures are kind of clicking. And the kids there just mesmerized, <laughs> trying to figure out a way he can get out of here. See, that kid's got to be at that table, though. How do we get that kid at the table? We get the kid at the table by valuing him, by inviting him. Because the truth is, here's the truth, not only do we need that 15-year-old, but that 15-year-old needs the grandpa, and the grandpa needs the 15-year-old. They both need each other. There's nothing worse than coming to the end of your life and then realizing you have no legacy because you didn't pass it on to anybody. There's nothing, there's, every older person is thinking about being gone one day and what's going to happen after. Imagine the kind of church that would have the kind of longevity of grandparents, parents, and kids and they would all be willing to come to the table. Don't get me wrong. We got, we got Wednesday night tag group. We got youth, youth group going on Wednesday night. We have college meetings. We have all kinds of subsets, no doubt. But there has to be some place where we're all going to come together and work together. Imagine the kind of church that could combine the wisdom and the experience and the resources. The resources of age. You do realize that it's only the aged ones that have the resources. It's why they make the calls so often about what the church culture is going to be like. Wisdom and experience and resources of age, what if you could combine that and put that together with the, the incredible strength and the enthusiasm and the innovation of youth? What kind of a church would that be? What would that look like if you could create a multi-generational church? Say that word with me. Multi-generational. Come on, all of you say it. Multi-generational. Thank you. I want you to get that phrase because we have to learn how to love people who are not like us. That was the point of Jesus telling the story of the Good Samaritan. He told it in response to, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The question that came was, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus tells a story about the Good Samaritan to help us understand we're called to love each other even though it's a diverse group of people. We're from different demographic periods. We have different cultures, but we have to learn how to love one another, how to be a family together. The final thing is when, you, when the church becomes a family, then we offer a place to belong. We offer a place to belong. Not just really good and healthy and vibrant people, but weak lonely, vulnerable, broken people. These are the people that need a place to belong. These are the people that are looking for some place that'll just help and, and give them sort of the, the solution and the answer that they're looking for. Here, come and belong here. You can belong here. I know, I know. So It's so easy to, to get it backwards because so many of our churches want to get people to believe something. You need to believe like I believe. And then you can kind of um, start becoming a Christian.
Christian, and then, and then you can belong. That's how you get in the club. That doesn't work. Being a family means you say you belong. God placed you here. You were an orphan, and God surrounded you with family. You were a widow, and God put you in a place of provision. You belong here. I know you don't believe quite all the same things that I do. It's okay. Your brokenness and your history and your past, I know it's all contributing to the struggle, but it's all right. I want to walk with you. I want to help you. You belong, and then you begin to believe something different about yourself. And then finally, you become all that God wants you to be. That's the description of a family. How, how did Jesus describe it? He said, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for who? <laughs> if we can figure out how to love each other genuinely as a family, guess what? The world gets attracted to that a place to belong because the truth is the bottom line for our culture and our society is one of the greatest needs, one of our greatest needs out there in Austin, one of the greatest needs of mankind and of people in our current society is to belong. They want to belong to something bigger and greater than themselves. The question is, will we be that kind of family? Will we embrace each other? Will we put up with the mess? Will we allow it to happen so that God can reveal his beauty in the midst of it. Close your eyes and bow your heads. Just let the Holy Spirit speak to you for a moment. I think there's probably two kinds of people in the room tonight. One is you don't think you belong. Somehow you've done too much wrong or you've, done, you've made too many mistakes or you don't think you can belong. Somehow you're so broken. You're afraid to show anybody else the mess. So you choose not to belong. You choose not to open up. Can I encourage you tonight? One chapel is a place you can belong. It's full of imperfect people. I'll grant you that. It may not be always smooth. But you can belong. Jesus is whispering to you and you're here and you've, you've been withholding for long enough and it's time for you to come home. It's time for you to come to the family. Stop being an orphan and let God place you into a loving family. The second group of people is a different group and you're people that you may already belong to the family, you understand you're part of the family, but somehow you haven't decided that you're going to take the responsibilities of being in the family. You're not willing to serve. You haven't really reached out to others. You're just kind of seeing it as a place to get what you need. Instead of understanding that because you belong to the family, there are chores. <laughs> there are responsibilities as well as privileges, and it's time for you to engage so that God can begin to work both in you and in others that you're serving. I want to challenge you to think about that, to think like that. And to surrender to God's calling to really genuinely be part of family. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or call you to the front. What I want you to do is I want you to just pray this prayer with me. I'm going to lead you, maybe under your breath, you just pray it with me. And let's make a commitment to be the family God wants us to be. Father, I thank you 
Oh, Father, thank you for making us your kids. Thank you for Jesus that shows us the way. Thank you for the way he laid down his life for my sin. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Forgive me for going my own way, doing my own thing instead of belonging to a family. Forgive me for really not engaging and serving, loving others. Heal my heart from the brokenness of my past. Heal my hurts. Heal the wounds that have been made by other family members and other places. Would you heal me, Jesus? Heal me tonight. Father, give me a new fresh start. Help me to begin again. Help me to belong. Help me to open up. I want to belong to your family, and I want to give my love, myself away. Teach me how. Show me how. Give me courage to do it. Give me wisdom. Give me the grace to be able to let other people into the mess of my own heart. To see you do something beautiful. I receive your forgiveness. I thank you for your healing. I thank you for the miracle that you're doing in my life now. I receive it. I take it. In Jesus' name, amen.